0: even that our God is the God of the small, the Lord of the small, and though Jacob, whom we'll study this morning, is, is not so much small, but he is in trouble, there is a plight, and it is to this God, whom we just sang to, that Jacob uh, refers to here and seeks after. We'll be in Genesis 32, you'll find that on page 27 in the Pew Bible, if you want to use the Pew Bible, and uh, you will be helped this morning, just let you know. Uh, having God's word out in your lap will be helpful, especially if you're not used to listening to a sermon the length of which I'm about to give. So um, we will, uh, you will find it easier to stay engaged, I promise you. If you have God's word open, we're going to go verse by verse. You wonder how much longer will this be? Well, when we get to the end of the verses, that's when we're drawing to a close. So I just want to prepare you for that, get ready for that, and uh, it will be a help I trust. So here we are in Genesis 32, and uh, beginning in verse 1. Hear now the word of God. Jacob went on his way and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's camp. So he called the name of that place Mahanaim. And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother in the land of Seir, the country of Edom, instructing them, thus you shall say to my Lord Esau. Thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants, and female servants. I have sent to tell my Lord in order that I might find favor in your sight. And the messengers returned to Jacob saying, We came to your brother Esau, and he is coming to meet you. And there are 400 men with him. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He divided the people who were with him and the flocks and the herds and the camels into two camps, thinking if Esau comes to one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant." For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan and now I have become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother from the hand of Esau for I fear him that he may come and attack me the mothers with the children but you said I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea which cannot be numbered for the multitude." So he stayed there that night And from what he had with him, he took a present for his brother Esau, 200 female goats, 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 milking camels and their calves, 40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. These he handed over to his servants, every drove by itself, and said to his servants, Pass on ahead of me, and put a a space between drove and drove. He instructed the first, When Esau, my brother, meets you and asks you, to whom do you belong? Where are you going? And whose are the, these ahead of you? Then you shall say, They belong to your servant Jacob. They are a present sent to my lord Esau, and moreover he is behind us. He likewise instructed the second and the third and all who follow the droves, You shall say the same thing to Esau when you find him, and you shall say, Moreover, your servant Jacob is behind us. For he thought, I may appease him with the present that goes ahead of me, And afterward, I shall see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. So the present passed on ahead of him, and he himself stayed that night in the camp. Shall we pray together? Father, we thank you for your word that we can consider this morning. Um, I trust uh, that you intend to encourage us, your people, especially when we find ourselves afraid. You are God to whom we can turn to, a God who is worthy of all of our trust. And so I pray for those who are afraid today, those who are distressed, those who are uncertain of the future. May they see that you are a God that is waiting for them to call out to you, for you to work on their behalf. And for those of us who yet one day will walk into that place, may we learn something of who you are and how you work on our behalf, for we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. It was in 1946 when a man named Joshua Liebman wrote a book entitled The Peace of Mind. Uh, it was the number one bestseller, best-selling book on the New York Times list for 58 consecutive weeks, and was in the top 10 for over three years. After his book, Peace of Mind, was published, Lieben, uh the author, became somewhat besieged with uh, letters in the mail and even phone calls of people who did not have peace and were contacting, reaching out to him in order for him to help them find it. And he uh, very diligently uh, took upon himself the monumental task of helping each person that reached out to him try to find the peace of mind to which he wrote of in his bestseller. And yet it seems that uh, the the amount of people who were reaching out to Liebman, or the degree in which people were in trouble, was a burden which he struggled under which to bear. Uh, The author of uh, Peace of Mind, uh, while his book was on the bestseller, would end up dying of a heart attack at age 41. Um, I would suggest to you this morning that no human, no matter how good their book may be, uh, is able to truly give you peace of mind, something that I think we all long for. I don't think it's something that we're capable of giving to one another, but I would like to suggest to you that God can, and indeed God will. In fact, he wrote a bestseller as well, and in his uh, best-selling book, he tells us that the peace of Christ can rule in our hearts, as we saw in the book of Colossians, our study there uh, this spring, that he tells us that he is willing to give us supernatural peace, even peace in times of trouble, even far more than peace of mind, he actually promises to give us peace with him. And this is a peace that our Lord gives, gives to us when we trust in his promises and recall them to mind and fight to believe in them. I've told you at perhaps one of my greatest times of unease and uncertainty and distress, I literally carried around for weeks a, a, a list of God's promises that I had wrote down on paper and I must have taken them out on an hourly basis whenever anxiety would flood my mind. I would read God's promises and I would return to God in prayer and speak to him about the promises in which he has given me. And it's in believing God's promises that I think we find peace. We actually are, are going to see something of this from Jacob. You see, Jacob is in a bit of a bind. And just to catch you up, if you weren't here last time, Jacob has fled uh, his enslavement, his slave master slash father-in-law, Laban. And after 20 years from working for Laban, he finally flees, him, flees from him with his, with his family, with all his kids, with all his, his animals, and he runs away. Laban, 10 days later, catches up with him with an army, and, uh, and they have a bit of a shouting match. And, and, and yet God intervenes in a dream and tells Laban, listen, you mess with Jacob, you mess with me. And so Laban backs off and they establish the border and say, you won't cross this border and I won't cross this border. If you do, we get to attack each other. If not, we just stay on our own side. And so Laban leaves uh, and now Jacob continues his trek back into the promised land. Now I shared with you last time that this story is like a, uh, the exodus in miniature. And so Jacob in a foreign land has, has grown in number and grown in wealth. And he has left uh, this, uh, this army behind him. And now he's coming into the promised land, just like the Israelites would uh, a number of years later. And yet we find the promised land is inhabited, inhabited by enemies. And Jacob, I think, seems like a grasshopper to Esau. You remember last time we saw Esau, Esau was not very happy with his brother. Jacob stole Esau's birthright, he lied to his father in the face, his blind old father, dressed up like Esau, pretended to be Esau, put the goat hair on his shoulders, you know, hairy Esau, give me the blessing, and stole that from his brother. His brother was so incensed and angered that, that Mama said, listen, I think you need to leave. Like, not just go one town over, you need to leave the country because your brother wants to kill you. And this is why Esau had to flee to Haran where he spent these 20 years. Now, he fled, if you remember. And Mama said, Well, as you go, listen, when it's safe to come back, I'll send word. Has he received that word? No. Mama never sent word. So 20 years later, he's coming back into the promised land. And as far as he knows, Esau is still piping mad and still wants to kill him. And so here, Jacob is facing that crisis, that dilemma. Okay. Now maybe you come here this morning. In a bit of your own crisis, a bit of your own dilemma. It might be at work, it might be at school, it might be at home, it might be in your body, in your health. Maybe you're a bit anxious today, like Jacob is. Maybe afraid. I think you have much to learn from this story. I think we all do. Perhaps you're here this morning and you're you're not a Christian. And we of course love it when uh, non-Christians come and visit with us. You're welcome anytime we gather to worship our God. And uh, we delight to have you here in our presence. One question I would have for you if you don't identify as a Christian today is how do you deal with uncertainty? And what's your plan on dealing with times of trouble? You might be interested to consider this morning what the Bible says, at least one example of what the Bible says we should do when we face these dilemmas. So let's consider Jacob's dilemma this morning in three scenes. First of all, uh, Jacob's predicament. Jacob's predicament, we begin, of course, in verse 1. Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. Now, I don't know if, if, if this strikes you uh, a bit understated, but it certainly strikes me as, you know, uh, you, you, I guess I would hope there would be more uh, scripture about this encounter with, with the angels. It just kind of says Jacob was going, and by the way, he met a bunch of angels. I mean, could you imagine coming home and your wife saying, how was your day today? This was pretty good. I had a lunch meeting. I got some emails. met some angels, right? And it was just kind of just matter of fact. The angel, the angel showed up. And I trust that these angels will show up to Jacob meet these angels as a source of encouragement to him. I mean, he's getting closer to Esau. And God, in light of that, gives this wonderful uh, angelic vision, reassuring Jacob. Hey, man, I'm with you. I got you. It's like a divine escort. In fact, I don't know if you remember when Jacob left the promised land in Genesis 28, which is the key to understanding all of Jacob's life. Remember he had a vision there, sleeping there at Bethel? And he had a vision of a ladder, and what did he see upon that ladder? But angels ascending and descending upon that ladder. And now as he returns to the promised land, what does he find? He finds angels there to greet him, like welcoming him back. It's almost as if the angels were stationed on the the border uh, of the promised land. And he enters into that that promised land with this angelic escort, if you will, greeted by these angels. And I'll I'll tell you, one day, Christian, when you enter into the promised land, you too will be greeted like Jacob was, For the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 12, you have come to Mount Zion to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and innumerable angels. Right. Innumerable angels. In fact, I, I, Jacob's encountering just not, not a few angels. It seems like quite a bit if you see in verse 2. And Jacob, uh, when Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's camp. So he called the name of that place uh, Mahanaim. Uh, let's see, let's try that again. Mahanaim. So here, here he is, he's coming into this, this place, and he sees God's camp. That word camp there, in reference to the angels, it can be translated company, can be translated army. Okay, and so there, it seems like a legion of angels. I mean, what a sight that must have been, what an encouragement. I mean, if I saw one angel, like if, if tomorrow morning you get up and you go to work, and there's like an angel who's out in your car and says, good morning, you know, uh, you know I'm Lenny, God sent me from heaven, I just wanted to let you know I'm going to be with you today, that would be a great source of encouragement, wouldn't it? No, so Jacob doesn't get one one angel will be amazing. He has an army of angels appear to him as he's about to encounter his brother. God sends this army to to calm his troubled heart. He calls the place Mahanaim, which means two camps. You see that in the footnote on the bottom of your page? Two companies, two camps, one being Jacob's of course, with his two wives, his two girlfriends and his 11 boys and his one daughter and all the flocks and all the rest servants and then one this unseen angelic camp marching with him right it reminds me of psalm 34 and verse 7 the angel of the lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers him and he protected jacob from laban in that divine dream and now he'll protect him from esau he wants to reassure him don't fear i got you i got you and he has this incredible vision and i i think we too must remember this truth right in times of crises dilemmas uncertainties god will care for us if we are in christ now, you might ask, well, are, are there angels around me then? Is that what you're saying? Well, perhaps. I don't know. God certainly sends them, it seems. He sent them in uh, John Wesley's life. That great evangelist for 52 years rode in the saddle across England many, many times to preach the gospel. And John Wesley, by the way, very sober theologian, not, not, doesn't have a natural tendency towards you know, seeing angels here and there. But he would tell, he would write about how, how the highways were incredibly dangerous times to, to ride. Uh, and he rode quite a bit, as I've mentioned. And he would always ride in teams because he didn't ride alone. It was a ba- bandits and the highwaymen or, were out there waiting for that lonely rider to take him down and to take his stuff and even to kill him. Well, there was one day Wesley said that he was riding alone. He couldn't find someone to ride with him. And he sees off in the distance uh, some forms on the road and they jump into the hedge. Right, they just disappear off the road, and he—he's so immediately alerted that this could be very, very dangerous. But he—he, he, by the way, knew people were waiting for him. He had a time scheduled to meet, and so he, rather than turning around, he decided to press on. And Wesley will tell us that out of nowhere, as he drew upon that hedge, he heard hoofbeats, and he looked to his side, and—and and there was another rider there, riding a horse right beside him, and he gave him a little happy greeting. And they silently rode together past that hedge. And, and, and he looked back, see that the danger had passed. And then he went to turn to the man who was riding next to him to, to chat with him. And he said the man was, gone. He was there for a moment and then gone. He assumed that was an angelic protection that was guarding him, even as God will care for us. The psalmist tells us in Psalm 91 that he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. And so he does so for Jacob. And yet, despite this incredible sight, Jacob seems to struggle to trust, as you see in verse 3. And Jacob sent messengers before uh, him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, uh, the country of Edom, instructing them, Thus shall you say to my lord Esau, thus uh, says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. And so he's going to send... Uh, uh, servants ahead of him to try to pave the way with this reencounter, encounters reunion with his brother and notice by the way how he refers to his brother he says go talk to my lord Esau now I have two older brothers and I have never once temp- been tempted even to call them my lord okay all right it's just not I don't even have that desire never thought that would be a good idea and yet Jacob is saying okay you know, go t- talk to my lord Esau it's very interesting you remember he stole Esau's blessing you remember what the blessing was the blessing in effect was jacob you will be esau's lord and so some wonder is he repudiating the blessing i don't think so i just think esau's really really scary okay right he's you know he's got the hairy shoulders and the cutoff t-shirt and the dipwad in his lip right and he's you know he's chasing him down i mean he's a scary dude esau's not someone you mess with and jacob clearly doesn't want to fight right if if you got two guys in you know in the bar and they say, Hey, do you want to go out and settle this outside? And the other guy says, Oh no, my lord, okay, that guy really doesn't want to fight, right? And so Jacob is not interested in taking Esau on. And so he says, Hey, go, and he says, Pave away, send a servant out, servants out to talk to Esau. And notice the, the news that they're to take him. Look in verse five. He says, um, I tell tell Esau I have Oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants, and female servants, I have sent to tell my Lord in order that I might find favor in your sight. In other words, go tell my brother, I am really, really rich. You know, he's traded in his smart car for a Hummer. Okay? He's got nice jewelry, I got a butler, I got a chauffeur, I got maids. Tell Esau I'm rich, and if he doesn't hurt me, I'll give him some. Okay? Now, this is a very Jacob-like plan, isn't it, as we've studied Jacob's life? He's always taking the initiative. He's always scheming. He always has a plan. He always has a strategy for good or for evil. Um, This is how how Jacob responds. So they go out. They go find Esau, and then they come back. You see in verse 6, the messengers return to Jacob saying, We came to your brother Esau, and he's coming to meet you, right? And you kind of wish they'd stop there. That sounds nice but then you got this, I don't know if they mumble it out, you know, beneath their breath, and 400 others are coming with them, right? He's, t- he's, he's coming, brother's coming, and he's got 400 men, right? Now, that, that does not sound too friendly, does it? I was uh, studying this passage with my kids last night, and I read that, just read the verse, and one of my kids said, uh-oh, right? <laughs> this is an, uh, this is a, uh-oh, right? This is, right, this is troubling, Jacob was, by the way, Jacob was afraid when he just was going to meet Esau one-on-one. Now it's Esau and his army, and he's terrified. You think maybe he'd turn around, but he just had a, a guy who hated him with an army, and they said, hey, you cross this border, I'll kill you. So he can't turn around, so he has to go forward. And he lets his fear begin to overrun his faith. As you see in verse 7, then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He's giving himself over to this anxiety. Now you wish, don't you, at this point, that he would have believed God's promises to protect him that when he appeared to him at Bethel. Or you wish he would have found strength in the 20 years in which God had blessed him as he served under Laban. Or you wish he would have remembered yesterday he saw about a thousand angels who, are, who are met with him. You wish he would have remembered that God had told him that you're going to be my agent of blessing to others. But it seems like he forgets it all. Overwhelmed with fear back doing his Jacob thing I need a plan and so he comes up with a plan he divides his family in two you see that in verse 7 he divided the people who were with him and the flocks and the herds and the camels into two camps thinking if Esau comes to one camp and attacks it then the camp that is left will escape right if he, if he attacks part of my family the rest of my family could get out of here all, all he, he's thinking about survival right trying to increase the odds you know, split him up into two groups. It, I I don't know if you. It's somewhat ironic that he divides his family into two camps. It, he's for, or he's forgetting about there is already a second camp, the angels there. Um, and yet, so he he goes back to his own scheming ways. And I don't know. It, perhaps it's a good strategy. It's, I'm not sure. But there's something that he's missing. I think, and you probably realize that as well. And something he realizes is missing is that he needs to seek God in prayer. As we turn to scene number two, Jacob's prayer. We see it in verse nine. Jacob said, oh God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac. Jacob is finally praying. Now Jacob has has been talking about God and Jacob has built altars in God's honor. Jacob is in many ways very religious but there has never been prayer in his relationship with God. This will be the first time Jacob will ever pray. At least it was recorded in scripture. And I, and I think many people, many times, we're, we're very, very religious. We're very, we go to church, we give our tithes, we serve in this way and that way. Uh, and yet, sometimes we're just too busy to pray. Right? And perhaps is the reason for Jacob's spiritual weakness. And maybe it's a weakness for many of the professing Christians that we, we set up our pillars, if you will, and we sing our songs. We talk about God, but, but do we talk to God? So God here, I think, is putting Jacob in an incredibly desperate place in order to force him to turn to god in prayer and i think god has done that in many many people's lives and so jacob prays this is by you'll be interested to know perhaps this is the longest prayer in the book of genesis and it is a remarkable prayer he's going to have a request towards the end but he is going to base his request upon five other truths so i just want to quickly work through this prayer and show point out six aspects of this prayer the important thing for you is not to memorize the six or even write all six down, but just to grab hold of one and just kind of bring it into your prayer life. I want to start incorporating this more and more into my prayer life. You notice he begins with God's covenant. As he says, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac. Now he's addressing God in the covenantal terms, in the covenantal relationship that God has elected with this family. Right? He's praying to God based upon the relationship that God initiated with these people and so he says listen I'm I'm not just some guy out here I'm part of this covenantal line you've been good to my family you've been faithful to them and so I pray to you based upon the relationship that you initiated with us right and so even before he comes to God and says I need this he says God I'm in a relationship with you right in other words God's not some pinata in heaven and, and prayer is the stick with which we beat him so he sprinkles down his treats upon us. No, God is the one to whom we are in relationship with, in covenant with. And we should pray like this. And I, I'm not sure we should pray. Maybe we should. I don't know. Do you ever pray God of, you know, God of my granddad, Jerry, and God of my father, Douglas? I don't know. Maybe that would be a good way to pray. But I, but I will tell you there is a relationship based upon which we should pray. We should be coming to God and praying, oh God, the Father of my Lord, Jesus Christ, right? I pray to you based upon the relationship that I have with your son, Jesus Christ. In fact, Romans 8 says, "Uh, he is my older brother, and if he's my brother, then you're my father. I'm united to Christ, therefore, you're my father. This is how Jesus taught us to pray. How should we pray? When you pray, pray like this, our Father, Father. Oh, secondly, you see God's, he talks to God about God's commands, begins with God's covenant and then goes to God's commands. Verse 9, O Lord, who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. So God, you said to do this. So he's praying God's words back to him. I will tell you, as I've told you before, that scripture and prayer, they go hand in hand. God talks to us through scripture. We respond to him in prayer. This is how we have this relationship with him. Therefore, we should not simply just read through the Bible. We should at times pray through the Bible. That is, we read and respond, read and respond scripture will come convict you of your sin you then stop and pray about your sin scripture will teach you this or that then you stop and pray how you should respond right these go together so he's telling God what God has told him to do Uh, like husbands you're reading Ephesians 5 as I have been recently and it says husbands love your wives as Christ loves the church and so what do you do you you stop and you pray God I I want I, I need more grace to love her well or I need more wisdom to love her in a meaningful way or today, let me see opportunities in which I can love her, right? We respond, We talk to God about what he just told us. Or wives, you read that. Husbands, love your wives. As Christ loved the church. You might give thanks to God for your husband. Or praise God for his love, no matter how, how imperfect it might be, and ask God to help him. It's Matthew Henry who says the best we can ever say to God in prayer is what he has said to us in Scripture. And so Jacob is quoting God's command back to him. Lord, you gave me this command, and I'm doing what you said. I'm trying to follow you but it's not going so well. I might be killed. My wives and my children, they might be killed. You've asked us to do something that is very dangerous, and I need to talk to you about this. I want to obey, but I'm struggling. And therefore, I I need your grace. As you see, thirdly, he recalls God's grace here in verse 10. I, I love this. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love, And all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. I wonder if you believe that. God, I am not worthy of all the love and faithfulness you have given me. And Jacob comes and doesn't lay out his accomplishments before God. Um, He says, God, I'm not worthy of anything. I don't deserve anything of what you've done to me. That, in other words, you're under no obligation to bless me. You you don't even need to listen to me. I'm unworthy. Worthy. is that part of your prayers you ever come to God and say I'm unworthy"? I, I, I remember our brother Mark Cochran an occasion on elders meetings when we'd be praying for our church or praying for some of you in particular Mark would 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 get down on his knees and pray for you and I, I don't know if you ever do that get on your knees that posture just communicates the greatness of God and the great degree of desperation you are having God work I think this is incredibly important. I hope you hear this. Now, he just prays, I'm not worthy in the context of his prayer. Because how often do you hear people praying for someone, and they lay out their spiritual resume as if God then should respond to all that they've done. God, you know, she teaches Sunday school, and she's faithful to the church, and she's such a good mom. Therefore, do this in her life, right? We, we lay out what they've done, and they say, okay, will you not, therefore, heal them because of who they are. In fact, Jesus actually taught a parable on this, didn't he? He he talked about a man who was praying to God. That's good. And the man comes up and he prays to God and says, God, thank you that I tithe. And thank you that I go to church. And thank you that I'm a deacon. And thank you that I'm not like that loser over there. Right? Remember that guy? Remember who that guy was? That was the Pharisee. And there was another guy who prayed. What did he pray? What did he pray? Have mercy on me a sinner. Which one do you pray like? Jacob says, I'm unworthy, but you are gracious. You are gracious. This is how we approach God. It's, It's not, you understand the biblical logic is not, I am worthy, therefore do what I ask. Nor is it, I am worthy, unworthy, therefore don't do what I ask. Neither of those is right. Because if you say, I'm unworthy, therefore don't do what I ask, you're just affirming the same guy's principle, and you just have a different regard of yourself. You still believe that you merit God's blessing. You haven't done very good, so you don't get any blessing. The biblical logic is to come to God and say, "I I am unworthy, therefore please do what I ask, because you are gracious. And Jacob feels his great need. And you need to feel you're unworthy. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, perhaps the best thing that could happen to you today is that you would discover how unworthy you are before God. And that would lead you to despair of your own self-righteousness and ask for God's grace. I hope you see the vast difference between Christianity and all the other world's religions. All the other world's religions say, do these things and you merit God's blessing. You'll earn your way into heaven. That's not Christianity. God is not in our debt. He owes us nothing, and so we ask him for grace. Fourth, you notice Jacob still hasn't asked for anything yet. He uh, thanks God for his blessings. Reading on in verse ten, he says, "For uh, with only my staff I crossed this Jordan, and now I have come back to camps." He says, "I left home. Nothing. I had nothing when I left home. I had no money. I had no gear." All I had, he says, all I had when I left is a stick, okay? And sticks are free, okay? So if you come up to someone and say, what do you have to show for your life? And they say, well, I got this stick, okay? That's not, that's not, you're not doing so hot. You got anything else? No, I just got this stick, okay? All you had, I had a stick, and now I got a family, I got 11 boys, and one girl, I got a business, I got a chauffeur, I got servants, right? And you gave it all to me. Right? It's all your blessing. See, before he comes with any request, I think this is interesting, he recognizes what God's already done. Before I ask you to do something else, it might be good to think about what you've already done for me on my behalf. I wonder, do you ever do that? Do you ever say, God, I need you to work here, but before I do, I I just want to thank you. I want to thank you for what you've done in my life. Let you begin to consider how God has blessed you. I, I wonder... What giving thanks would do? Giving thanks to God would do for your fear and your anxiety. Like if you rehearsed what God has already done and is doing in your life, I wonder what peace might even come just by doing that. So I, I think we're often worried because we doubt God in crisis. I I don't know how the future is going to work. I, I don't know how it's it's going to all come come out. But we actually know one who who actually controls the future. And we need to remind ourselves who he is and what he has done and what he's doing that he could be trusted, right? We think about all the blessings he's done in our life and we tell anxiety to shut its mouth and we give thanks to God. And I think we'll start to think differently about life in the situations if we start searching for how, what God has already done. This would be a good, good habit to get into, like just throughout your day. It's like you're driving to work tomorrow. Hey, the traffic's light. Thank you, God. Or that's a third green light in a row. Thank you, God. Or I have no emails in my inbox. Thank you, God, right? You just ought to thank God for your friends and your work and your class. You ought to thank God for your kids and thank God that you have money to go out to dinner or thank God that you get a car to drive. Jacob here is thanking God. I hope you know we've been hard on Jacob, haven't we? Jacob is the testimony of God's grace, but we see him growing here. God, I've been a pain in your neck my entire life, and you've only been good to me. And it's based upon God's blessing that he now comes fifth and he asks for God's help. He says here in verse 11, please deliver me. I like that. I think that's a good prayer. You want to memorize scripture, memorize those three words. Genesis 32 verse 11, please deliver me. I hope that many of you have prayed that prayer. Because we all need to be delivered or we might say saved. We all need to be saved, don't we? Not say from Esau. We all need to be delivered, namely from God and his wrath. God is going to punish sin because God is good and holy. And God will either punish you for your sin or he will punish Jesus for your sin. Everyone has two options. You only get two options in this life when it comes to to meaning God, you could have God's mercy or you could have God's wrath. There is no other option. You get to choose. That's the wonderful thing. See Jacob is rightly afraid of Esau. And, 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 he's, and, he, and he says, I, I'm afraid. He says he's full of distress. And uh, as we already mentioned, Esau's, Esau's scary. He's got 400 men. That's scary. But you know who's scarier than Harry Esau and his 400 men? God is. God is. Someone once said, don't fear those who can kill the body but can't kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. You say, that doesn't sound nice. Who said that? Yeah, it was Jesus who said that. Right? Don't just fear people like Esau. All he could do is kill your body, Jesus says. But fear God who can throw you into hell. I pray that some of you perhaps who are not Christian today would for the first time pray to God, Oh, please deliver me. Save me. Let Jesus take my judgment. I trust him and I yield my life to him. Well, he... He, of course, is not praying for eternal salvation, but he is praying that he be saved from his brother, and he's very honest with God in, in doing so. As you read on in verse 11, please deliver me from the hand of my brother, uh, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, that he may come and attack me, the mothers, with the children. Right? I'm afraid he's going to kill me. I'm afraid he's going to attack my family. Notice, by the way, Jacob's not just thinking of himself anymore. He's, he's being the head of his home. He's, he, he Jacob is much less the, the way Jacob used to be. I get the privilege of caring for for these women, for their children. He's praying for them. Right? This is what Jesus teaches us to do. Remember, teach us how to pray. What does he say? The last request, please deliver us from evil. That's what Jesus teaches us to pray in the Lord's Prayer. When there's uncertainty and fear and danger, what do you do? You pray. When you, you need to move and you're afraid how it's going to go, you should pray. When you go to a new school and you're afraid how it's going to get along, you should pray. When you have a new job and you're not sure how it's going to work out, you should pray. When things are painful and hard and difficult, what should you do? You should pray. God has given us this great ministry of, of prayer and even the act of praying. Now, I believe prayer moves God. I, I think uh, the this, this statement that's often heard, prayer doesn't change God, it changes you. I think that's utter nonsense, to be perfectly honest. I think prayer does move God to act. But I will tell you, prayer does change you. And before COVID, we used to have a quarterly prayer meeting where we would gather people in our church and we would, uh, who are in distress and we would lay on hands upon them and we would pray for them. Uh, many, many people just praying for them. And I'll tell you, every time that's happened, the person who receives prayer walks through that situation and feels less anxious than they did before prayer. They become more confident in God's sovereignty and his goodness. This is what prayer does. I'll tell you, prayer is never the wrong move. I have never said, I've been following Jesus now for 30 years this month, and I have never said to someone who came to me and said, oh, I prayed for that, and I've never said, oh, you shouldn't have done that. Yeah. oh, no, that, you don't want to pray for that one, right? Prayer is never the wrong move. And so Jacob says, God, I need you. I need you. I'm freaking out here. I don't know how this is going to go, right? And so he lays that out, before God, and we should too. But you notice there's a sixth aspect to this prayer is that he recites God's promises. There's his request, he finally gets to it, but then he goes back to God's word. Look what he says in verse 12. But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. Right? He began reciting God's commands, now he's reminding God of his promises. In other words, God, you promised, you promised me, What is he doing? He's saying to God, do what you have said. I'm asking you to fulfill your promises. He's Right? Do what you said. Now, parents, we don't like this when our kids come to us and say, you promised. Right? We don't like that because we often don't keep our promises. Okay? Okay? But God always keeps his promises. And so God doesn't mind when we come and say, you promised. Because he intends to keep it. And it shows that we remember it. It shows that we are clinging to them, that we are holding on to them in times of difficulty. And so Jacob's in danger, and he says, God, you promised to do me good. You promised to expand my offspring. You promised that we would flourish, and I'm asking you to act according to your promises. And I think, my brothers and sisters in Christ, you would do well when you pray to God to, to remind him, and in reminding him, reminding your own heart of what he has promised. God, you promise you will never leave me. God, you promise you'll help me in times of trouble. You, you, you promise to be a strength and a refuge, to do good to us, to go before us, to work all things out for my good, to, to, to forgive my sins and give strength for the weary and to uphold me with your righteous right hand, to come to God and say, God, this is what you have told me that you will do and I'm clinging to it in faith. My friends, this is a good prayer. This is one you should know. God, this is who you are. This is who I am. This is what I need. This is what you promised. I'm in over my head. Save me. Tomorrow, I'm going to walk up to an army, and I'm going to do so trusting you. But that doesn't mean that he doesn't have a plan. And so turn lastly, and I'll be more brief here, Jacob's plan. Jacob's plan. Look what he does in verse 13. So he stayed there that night, and from what he had with him, he took a present for his brother Esau, 200 female goats and 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 milking camels and their calves, 40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. Okay, so what, what's going on here? He, he, is, he is sending gifts to Jacob. Okay? Uh, Esau, rather. So Jacob sending gifts to Esau. In other words, he's sucking up. Okay? Here's a car. Would you like a car? Right? How about a TV? Okay? He's sending all these things on to him. Now, the question is, is this bad or good? Is this Is this quintessential scheming Jacob, or is this wise? And people are divided on this, to be honest. I took a vote in my family last night. Many people think, this is faithless. He's being faithless. He's forgotten his prayer. I don't think so. I actually think it's wisdom. I think he's saying, God, I trust you, and I'm going to use wisdom in my plans. I think faith and action go hand to hand. In other words, just because we pray, doesn't mean we don't come up with a plan. So I prayed for my marriage, therefore I don't need to buy her flowers and say I'm sorry, right? Uh, you know, I prayed for, for you know, my cirrhosis, therefore I don't have to stop drinking. I, 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 I prayed I get the job, therefore I don't need to prepare for the interview. I prayed I passed the test, therefore I don't need to study. I prayed the sermon will go well, therefore I don't have to craft it and work on my delivery. No, I prayed and trusting God, now coming from that prayer, I'm going to act in wisdom prayer and action go together i don't know if you remember it was in genesis 14 when Lot, the nephew of abraham was captured by an undefeated army and abraham who was about 200 years at that time gets on his camel and rides three days with his men to go fight this undefeated army and and there they come upon the army and yet what do you know you know what they do they wait till night divide the army up and attack in the middle of the night right everyone's around the campfire. Uh, and down descends Abraham and his troops and they win the battle you say where does Abraham get the courage to fight an undefeated army this man who is not a man of war where does he get that courage from trusting God God you said I'd be a great nation God you said uh, uh that I should trust you when I fear uh, and so he's he's trusting God he's acting in faith and he's using strategy okay he, tr- he, he doesn't say I trust you God Therefore, I'm just going to walk right up to the enemy and say, hello. I trust you, God, and therefore we sneak attack. Okay? This is faith and action go together. In other words, just because you're trusting God doesn't mean you don't have a plan. Jacob says, I trust you, God, and now he's going to use a plan to ease things over. And so we see this. He gets all his animals together, and he's going to start sending them ahead of him. You see that in verse 16? Then he handed over his servants. Every drove by itself and said to the servants, pass on ahead of me. And put a pace between drove and drove. He instructed the first. When Esau my brother meets you and asks you to whom do you belong. Where are you going and whose are uh, these ahead of you. You will say they belong to your servant Jacob. They are a present sent to my Lord Esau. And moreover he is behind us. So you, you, you get what's happening like right? Here comes a new car. And Jacob says hi. Here you go. And just you know Esau gets in the car. This is pretty nice. And just when he gets out of the car and begins to move towards Jacob. Here comes a big screen TV. This is from uh, your servant J- uh, Jacob. He says hello. All right, and, and then here comes a nice massage chair. You want one of those? And here you go. Right, and Jacob says hi. And here comes some jewelry. Jacob says hi. Okay, and he's just he's just sending these things to him. 550 animals. Now I know nothing about animals, so I'm going to take a guess here. I have, no, I, for instance, what does a female goat cost? I have no idea. I'm going to guess somewhere around 200 bucks. Seven, so you, you will. You will find me if I'm correct. Incorrect, I know that, right? So let's just say, it's 200 bucks. 200 bucks for a female goat, he sends 200 of them. That's $40,000, right? And on and on it goes. This, this, is, this is fit for a king. You see, Jacob, by the way, is obscenely wealthy, and he's very eager to placate Esau's wrath, right? And so he spaces them out, has enough time to admire one, and then the next group arrives. You see, in verse 19, his strategy concludes, He likewise instructed the second and the third and all who followed the the droves. You shall say the same thing to Esau when you find him. And you shall say, moreover, your servant Jacob is behind us. For he thought I may appease him with the present that goes ahead of me. And afterwards I shall see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. So the present passed on ahead of him. And he himself stayed that night in the camp. He says, I want want to appease him. And I, I would say rightly so. He's wronged his brother. He stole from his brother. I wonder if Jacob is saying, I'm, I'm making peace through restitution here. I've taken from him. I am now giving back to him. I'm paying him back. I'm making it right. And by the time he's hoping, tomorrow morning when he shows up with donuts, right, Esau will say to his men, hey, guys, just put the swords away. That's my brother, right? Or at least he won't kill me. And so he sent them off. Jacob stays behind. Let him enjoy those gifts until I see him in the morning, leaving Jacob alone as he fights to trust the Lord in this crisis and it will be quite a night as we'll see God willing next time we're in Genesis there's a pastor down in North Carolina uh, who was raised in Cuba his father was a missionary in Cuba and they lived on handouts and yet God seemed to always meet their needs you know one particular day when this this pastor was 13 years old living in Cuba they came to the dinner table and uh similar to a story that I've read about George Mueller, uh, the mother looks at the family and says, through the tears in her eyes, we, we have nothing to eat. I don't know, if you, you ever ever got to that place? I, mean, just, there's, I looked over the house, there's nothing to eat. He said, my dad at that point says, we need to join hands and we need to thank God for the food he's going to give us. Food's not there, there's no food in the house. This 13-year-old said, I thought my dad was out of his mind. And they all joined hands. And this man says, God, you have promised to meet our needs. And so we are asking you right now for our daily bread, and we give you thanks in providing it. said amen, and the father looked at his family and said, now let's see how God provides. He said 20 minutes later, there was a knock at the door. A Christian brother said, I don't know. I had a sense that you were in need. I've brought A bag of food. This pastor, who was 13, writes of this event and says, I was so hungry, but I can't even remember what we ate that night. The reward was not the food. It was learning that we could always depend on God. Do you depend on God in times of trouble? Do you talk to God about your worries or do you just worry about your worries? Maybe you talk to your spouse or call your mother or read the books or see what Oprah has to say or whatever nonsense is out there. But do you actually talk to God? That we get filled, like Jacob, at times with anxiety and fear. Why not do what God has told us to do and go to him? For your God, Christian, will meet all your needs according to his riches in Christ Jesus. And so we say with the Apostle Paul, to God our Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Our Father in heaven, um, you are our great provider. You will care for us in a way that fits your wisdom and your plan and is perfect and beautiful and, of course, the ultimate provision that you have made for us is not in this wilderness wandering called the human life. But it is when we walk into that promised land that Christ has secured for us. We will, I think, look back upon our days. And at that time, perhaps more clearly than ever, see how our God has provided for us from cradle to grave and then on into everlasting. You are worthy of our trust. May we give ourselves to that faith in which you call us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We invite you to stand as we join in singing, He is the Lord.